Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. All right. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy House. Today, we have the one, the only, Erin McKeown on Basic Folk. She is an amazing singer-songwriter who has been releasing music since the late 90s slash early 2000s. Before we get into what exactly we talked about with Erin, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at mcdean.co to get one. Basic Folk is supported financially and emotionally by motivational life coach Janet Forrest. Janet works with individuals with big dreams who need support and accountability to get moving. Visit JanetForrest.com to learn more. Mention Basic Folk and you will receive 25% off your first month of coaching. First time I met Erin McKeown was the year 2000. I was at Emerson College, a freshman. I think she was there on my first day. She came in. She was super cool. She gave me a copy of her album Distillation at the time. That was a huge record for me and have just been a fan and enjoyed following her career ever since. We talk about her last name, which has haunted DJs for almost 20 years and the implications of that. We talk about sports. We talk about science. We talk about drugs. We talk about summer camp. We also talk about her friendship with Rachel Maddow. Rachel contributed to uh, an album that Aaron did in 2013, the song Baghdad to the Bayou, which was written over text messages between Aaron and Rachel and um, talked about what it was like to have a friend get very, very famous. And also, one thing, I did take this out of the out of the interview, but we talked for near 10 minutes about her uh, project in the early 2000s called Voices on the Verge with uh, Jess Klein, Beth Amsell, and Rose Polanzani. There was the four of them. They made one record together and um, went on tour for a few years. I guess it was the, in, the late 90s into the early 2000s, but we talked for a really long time, and I'll just like give you a couple of clips of what that conversation was like. I can't believe anyone would be possibly interested in this. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> Keep but anyway, going. that's how the four of us... I'm interested. That's how the four of us got together. Um, I think that you and I could write the folk Wikipedia. But who would want to read this? This is um, my question. You and me. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) So if you're really interested, maybe I'll put a bonus episode out of me and Erin McCune talking about Voices on the Verge. But my gosh, I feel like it would be like me, her, and Matt Smith from Club Passim are the ones that would be interested in that. 
All right. Um, we're going to take a listen to a song from Erin called The Queer Gospel. This is from her album Mirrors Break Back, according to us. And then we will get to our conversation with Erin McKeown on Basic Folk. There are those who think we're wicked. There are those who call us names. Depraved, lost and sick and would rather bathe us in shame. Okay, well, I definitely want to start off with your last name. Like, the pronunciation of your last name has been, like, crippling to DJs for close to two decades now. So let's start with your last name. Is that all right? Yes. Um, And then may we discuss the implications of this crippling? Yes. Because that's interesting to me. Okay. Um, McKeown rhymes with phone. McKeown. Aaron McKeown. Yes. Exactly. And um, over the years, going to many radio stations, people have shown me their computer files or their CDs with hand scrawled masking tape taped across them with their version of the pronunciation written on it to help them. And um, I would say four out of five times those are wrong. Mm. So what someone has written in the computer or scrawled on the CD to help this problem is also wrong. Where is patient zero for this mispronunciation of your last name? Do you mean where does it originate? Yeah. Well, it could be with me because when I was starting out my career, like I didn't care. So I wasn't correcting people. I was too embarrassed. I didn't feel like I could take up the space to say you're saying it wrong. To be honest, I'm like super, super ambivalent about my family name. It feels complicated to me to like fight for for something that I'm so ambivalent about. Mm. But that did that change at some point? Well, it changed because of the aforementioned implications. I have, um, uh, we call each other cousins, Susan McKeown. I don't know if you were ever familiar with oh, her yeah. music. Mm-hmm. Amazing, um, Dublin-born, New York-based singer-songwriter. Um, we met in the late 90s through a radio DJ in Hartford named Ed McKeown who spells his name without a W. And Ed said, you have to meet Susan. And I met Susan and she, mm, I think she might have asked me or she might have noticed that I wasn't correcting how people were spelling and saying our name. And she said, you need to have some pride. You need to like take some space up. You need to, you know, besides the fact that like for your career, people need to know like what your name is and who you are. So it was really at her urging that I started to do that. 
it's haunted me to be honest over the years like i've had i've had more examples than i could even remember of any version of like metadata being put in wrong when people are putting stuff into the the computer or when people used to have to enter their own shit into their iTunes when they would burn a CD, people spelling names wrong, people pronouncing your names wrong. So I'd run into someone or someone would like my music, but they didn't know it was me oh, man. or vice versa. My and God. that's the, that's the shit that keeps me up at night because it's like you work, you work so hard to get these like tiny little footholds. Um, mm-hmm. And you fight so hard to get like whatever recognition you can get and, and you keep doing it over and over the years. But that is like so completely out of your control. And yeah. it feels like this vast swamp that you're trying to like connect a point of light across or something. You know, okay. I mean, I, I this has happened with friends. I remember being in a car with um, some friends of mine that I just know from like in town, just like friends in town. And they know I'm a musician and they they know my music. But like. I mentioned a song of mine called James. It's like a, an old song of mine that um, is about my high school boyfriend. And I, I sang a little bit of it. And my friend who's driving the car stops the car and turns around and says, wait, you sing James? I've had that song in my iPod for 10 years and your name's not attached to it. It's like Eric something. And I'm like, no. oh, my God. You know, so like that's anyway, I don't know if you anyway, I could go on. Wow, that was intense already. Um <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I have to tell you one more thing. Okay. <clears throat> I'm so sorry I'm coughing so much. I have to tell you one more thing, which is that I have a cousin who's an actress. And um, she's an actress and a stand-up comedian in L.A. And she's a couple years younger than me. And we, I adore her. And we're both the, we're the only queer people in our family or the out, only out queer people in our family. Um, so I especially adore her. But um, her last name growing up, her mom and my dad are relatives. So she had her father's last name, which was a Polish last name, which had like, no vowels and almost all consonants mm. and so when she started her career she was like I know I definitely need to change my name I'll never be able to be an actress like with this last name and she fucking changed her last name to McKeown <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing like why didn't you call me and like get my advice on this I mean she wanted to honor our grandmother she wanted to honor like you know the matrilineal side of her family but um girl i could give you some advice oh man yeah totally so i want to know about um how you felt about music when you were growing up so you played piano when you were very young but you didn't feel empowered by playing it but what connection did you feel with music in general well i didn't have any connection when i was growing up to playing music i liked listening to music the piano to me was like this activity that you did as like a middle-class kid I mean I'm extremely grateful that someone put me in front of a piano at age three it wasn't expressive and it wasn't spiritual I think part of that could be uh, because I wasn't maybe so interested in the music maybe part of it was that um, I've never been like a great reader of music and so that was more my experience being in front of the piano was reading music as opposed to playing music or feeling music I certainly loved music and I heard a lot of music in church and I heard a lot of music in community theater, which we went to a lot and a lot of like community um, orchestra. My parents were really into, I mean, I grew up in a really small town, but there was a lot of stuff to do and my parents were really into doing all that stuff. Was it in Um, Massachusetts? No, I grew up in Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, I grew up in Virginia, a town called Fredericksburg, um, which has a college in it and is, um, you know, an hour from DC and an hour from Richmond. So like, pretty pretty cultural given how small it was at the time but I also was always making up 
stories and making up songs. I mean, I had a band with my best friend in kindergarten and we were called Wildcats. <laughs> and, wow, it's so cool. <laughs> and we had like, you know, we got like my little red boom box and put a cassette in it and we'll just press record and then we would sing in front of it. And like, that was my experience of making music. That was my experience of expressing was Wildcats. Wow. And um, I mean, I would die to find that cassette now. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until I started playing guitar that that actually playing an instrument and playing music in a more traditional sense started to feel connected and expressive. Okay, I want to talk a lot about summer camp. I love talking to people about the different types of summer camps they went to. Oh, yeah. You should have a like a sub podcast yeah. called <laughs> Summer Camp Folk. <laughs> God. Um, you went to science camp and nature camp? The first camp I went to was like a gifted kid camp at University of Virginia. It was very like class oriented and you stayed in a dorm and you ate in the cafeteria. I hated being there. I was homesick. I wasn't ready. Um, I tried to escape basically. What? Like some of our classes were in UVA buildings and some of them were in this uh, private school that was near UVA. And I remember like asking if I could go to the bathroom and then I went to a payphone and called my dad and was like, you have to like take me away from here now. And they didn't, you know, I mean, I think that's probably good parenting to make your kids stay at something like that. But the next summer I went to a different camp that my mom had heard about called nature camp that was in um, the George Washington National Forest in the Shenandoah National Park in Western Virginia. Also a science camp, a theme through my youth, mm. um, but a science camp that also included staying in cabins and making s'mores and camper talent night and counselor talent night and campfires and hikes and swimming and a lot of the more outdoors things that you expect from a summer camp. Okay, I want to know a little bit more about the science element to to that camp and also what made it a place that felt special to you like I feel like a lot of times summer camp for certain types of kids feels like home well it definitely immediately felt like home to me it was the combination of science and non-science things um, which was really I mean certainly is to some extent who I am now but for sure when I was a kid I was like into doing like smart kid things, but I wasn't into like only being like a science kid. Like I did a ton of drugs and I played a lot of sports. All of those things mattered to me almost equally. And so then when I went to nature camp, you had two classes a day and you picked your major and you would go to that class, two classes every other day. And then you got to go to every other kind of class once through your two-week session. And they were divisions of biology. So like things like... um Botany and mammalogy, which is mammals, herpetology, which is snakes and frogs, limnology, which is the study of fresh water, um, geology, which is obvious, different uh, divisions. So like I majored in ornithology one summer, but I got to take all these like other classes about mammals and fish and rocks. Also, after dinner every night, the counselors pulled out their guitars and this songbook that was a kind of crowdsourced over the years accumulated songbook um, where we all sang songs together and I'd never done that before I didn't go to a church where we um I didn't go to like rock church you know I went <laughs> to like um pretty old school catholic church so it was a, it wasn't Those that kind of songs yeah not really <laughs> um so it was like a bunch of people singing in a room together with guitars and it was so great and then 
you know, then we would have evening program and somebody would um, come and tell us about owls and like bring three owls and we would get to, you know, like see an owl up close, you know, and then you go back to your bunk and like talk about Nirvana or something, you know, or like what Mm. CDs you got in your CD of the month club. By the time I was going to this camp, it was already 50 years old. It just celebrated its 75th anniversary. So it was, you know, a rich tradition of um, people in these buildings and collecting these songs and doing these like science experiments. And all of that made sense to me, not just one piece of it. Can we go back to, and you can say pass on this, but can we go back to the comment you made about playing a lot of sports and doing a lot of drugs? Oh, yeah. What? (laughs) Does that sound like fun? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm... Were those two things like a huge part of your identity in high school? Like I'm trying to like figure out as someone who did not do drugs or sports in high school, but did so many other things like it just seems like those two don't go together. Well, they also in in some people's experience don't go together with being an artist. I mean, I guess maybe the drugs, but playing sports. But um, there's sort of this Venn diagram of other artists that I found that sort of were interested in all three things, you know, being a musician, being a drug addict, and being an athlete. Uh, for Would me, you call yourself a drug addict in high school? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you seem so and, comfortable just, like, saying that. Oh, I've had a lot of time to think about <laughs> it. I haven't done any drugs in more than a decade, so I've had, I've had time to think about it um, and reflect on it and make a choice to not do those things anymore. Yeah. Um, but they're very much a part of this time period that, um, that we're talking about, you know, um, I think that I was not interested in, um, uh, I wasn't interested in being like fully excellent. Like it wasn't okay with me to be like the valedictorian. I couldn't just like accept that I needed to be like the valedictorian who did drugs. Oh, there was some way of like, I just couldn't, again, like couldn't take up that space or, or couldn't be proud, completely like stand in that space. I felt like I, I needed to be, these other things, too. Like it wasn't enough? Uh, it was too much, is oh, what it was. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it was like too good, too excellent, too too pure, too something, you know? And I was like, mm. I'm more complicated than this. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, yeah. And I just played sports because I, I'm competitive and I really like to run around. And, um, and I also really like the suspense of sports. Um, I mean, I I'm, continue to be a... a avid athlete and a major sports fan and it's you know the the best movie i can think of i was like you you don't know how it's going to end like you really <laughs> don't you're watching like duke carolina and you have no idea like like you can guess based on like a history or something but all kinds of things that happen all the time duke that carolina in an interesting matchup with duke carolina would be basketball it would not be a, a football matchup between them would not be that interesting mm. And a yes. women's a women's soccer match between Duke and Carolina would be one sided. Okay, all right, good. I'm gonna need, I'm gonna have to ask you a lot of sports <laughs> questions. Um, okay, maybe we can come back to sports at uh, a certain point, but I'd like to talk about gender. Sure, um, <laughs> it's a good transition. Um, what has been the evolution of your relationship with gender, and how has it played into your sexuality and your discovery of being queer? Well, I didn't know what I I mean, the context is that I started high school in 1992 and I graduated from college in 2000. And in those eight years, 
the conversation well for me I didn't even know at the beginning of that time I didn't know what the word gender meant I didn't know the difference between gender and sex and sexuality that those are three completely different things that are in relationship to each other but define different I had no idea what I knew was that um, I was a girl and was comfortable being called a girl but did not dress like other girls and so I think maybe like tomboy made sense to me at that time, but then as other girls grew out of tomboy, um, I sort of started to feel kind of like alien and dislocated, but didn't have the language for it. So then I went in the late 90s to a college where I learned these words and learned these relationships. But what was missing at the time was the word queer, which was um, beginning to become used, but it's certainly not in the way that it is now. And um, so like, the more I learned about the word queer, like into the 2000s and into the like 2010s, the more I was like, oh, that's that would actually make sense to me. So like I came out as a lesbian in, you know, high school, 1996, right before I went to college. But I came out as queer, like probably like five or six years ago when I better understood what queer was describing because it describes me better than the word lesbian. Why is that? For me, queer is a process, not just a sexuality or not just a gender, but a process that you apply to everything. To me, it's not an umbrella term for uh, LGBTQ. Like it, to me, it's like an act, just an action and a process. So for me, it's how I think about gender, which is that I imagine it as a kind of free for all and spectrum, and how I think about sexuality, which is like free-for-all on the spectrum but also like how I put together my desire and my relationships which are of my own u- unique design hmm. and throughout your career you've kind of made it a point not to sexualize your image I don't know like what the question I want to ask is other than well like, there's no question you- I can just say thank you <laughs> thank you for noticing <laughs> yeah well I I think it kind of leads into so you've made it a point not to sexualize your image And I wanted to talk to you about that gaze that most females experience, queer or not, um, not just for men, but from women, too. And if like, obviously, hopefully, you know what I'm talking about and what has been your relationship to that gaze. Um, A couple of things. There are lots of different gazes, G-A-Z-E-S. Right. So if we're talking about like the the kind of oppressive male gaze, right? So like, let's talk, talk about that gaze. Before I knew what I was doing, and then once I knew what I was doing, I was like, I will not construct myself for the male gaze. Like, I just won't. And so that meant, like, keeping my mouth closed in photographs, right? That meant, like, not showing certain parts of my body in photographs. That meant wearing pants. There's all kinds of different ways that, like, you can... Um, there's a language that a visual language that is built by the male gaze and there's a way that you can reject it by not participating in it by by for me like what I wear maybe the type of hair that I have I certainly notice that when I take my hair down on the subway like I get more men looking at me but when I have my hair like up or under a hat like I'm invisible right I have a ton of really long hair and like if I (laughs) if I take it down like it's it's very thick it's very thick and very long, and I mostly like keep it up in some sort of something, but 
sometimes I really like having long hair. And so I take it down and I certainly notice the difference. That's Mm. one example. I also want to say, though, that like people can do all these different things to like reject the male gaze and still be the object of violence and unwanted attention. Mm. Right. That's the deal with the male gaze. <laughs> right? just, I just feel like I it just, just eats up everything. Yeah, you I know? just feel like I just like collapsed inside. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, but that but I also think that there's a language that as queer people, we visually speak to each other. And I think it's ever evolving. But there's a way that, you know, um, uh, I can walk into a room and I can spot the queers and they can spot me. And um, sometimes it's in a way that you talk. Sometimes it could be in the politics that you're talking about, but sometimes it's like the way you wear your hair or sometimes it's the T-shirt that you're wearing. Or, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that like you find each other. And I think that I've been sending those signals in the visual representation of myself for many years. I mean, I would say sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously, but the more I decided to sort of be myself and have things look like myself the more I have been able to make those connections with people I just did a house concert in um, Pittsburgh actually a couple of weekends ago and um, I had the best time and um, it was maybe 50 people in this like basement and they were all kinds of different people but of course like when the queers walk in like we spot (laughs) each other from across the room and it's just like hey I see you kind of thing Mm. You've covered so much ground genre-wise, and you're always kind of searching and exploring in your music. Like, it's been a constant throughout your entire career. I'm wondering how that translates to your personality. I mean, it's the same part of me that likes drugs and sports and science. You know, that likes a lot of different things that maybe don't seem to go together, but make a ton of sense to me. Oh, it's like you're... Your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and probably there's some artists that we like because they keep making the same song over and over again. And we like that song. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, then there's some artists that we like because they continue to surprise us. I mean, there's obviously like things in between, but I've always been more, even if I wanted to be the same be the kind of artist that wrote the same song over and over again I just never could be and humor also is really hard to insert into music but I think you've managed to do it basically from the start how challenging did you find that to bring your sense of comedy into a song not just lyrically but musically as well I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> That's a good question. I've actually never no one's ever asked me that. Ding ding ding. Ding ding ding. <laughs> um I would say um I mean I think in general I'm I am someone who for better or for worse never takes anything totally seriously, but I am also interested. I do think like humor is a really great political tool for either um, you know, undercutting someone's assumptions, for getting someone to appreciate something they didn't think they could appreciate. I think that's where I've always come from that I've I remember when I was a kid, um, too young, someone showed me a bunch of Monty Python movies. <laughs> I loved them and felt very shaped by that. And there used to be this show on PBS called Are You Being Served? It was oh, a yeah. British, right? The Mrs. British Peacock. Exactly, with her pussy at home. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, 
so I watched that a lot, and then I also was given The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Nice. Also too young, and I read all those books. And there's something about the humor that's common to all of those things. I mean, that's sort of like British humor um, that that uses humor in all those ways that I was just saying that it's both political, um, it can help turn people's opinions around, um, it's playful. It's just always been part of my part of my thing. I'm not going to guide you to answer this next question, but can you talk about your reaction to the you sound like Ani thing? Oh, (laughs) well, when I was um, very new to playing the guitar and writing songs, um, you know, an older female friend in high school gave me a cassette tape that had Ani on one side and Michelle Shocked on the other side. And that cassette changed my life. I mean, this is pre-internet, so like, how was I ever going to find out about either of those artists except by word of mouth and someone, you know, especially in the small town that I was living in? Um, And if at that time you said, you sound like Ani to me, I would have been like, thank you so much. Like, the only thing I want in the world is to sound like Ani (laughs) DeFranco, the Indigo Girls, or Dave Matthews, you know? And um, I was working on all of those things. And... At some point, I outgrew that, but I did not outgrow the assumption that people had with a young, small woman playing an acoustic guitar. And I felt like I started to do something that was different than what she was doing, and I wanted to be seen and heard on my own as my own type of artist. So when um, my very first year in college, I started playing the electric guitar, and I started playing it on purpose so that people would stop saying, you sound like Ani. I mean, and it's been great for me because it's a it's an amazing instrument and the history of women on the electric guitar is important and I'm like proud to be part of it. Sometimes we make great artistic choices in opposition to oppressive things that ignorant people say. Okay, spirituality. Aaron, do you have a connection to faith and God? Yes, why are you asking? I'm so curious. No one ever asks. Well, my friend Lindsay who is one of my biggest cheerleaders and supporters. Like we Oh, have, wait, she underwrites the podcast. She does, yeah, yeah. she totally does. But I like, hear her ad. She's super into basic folk. I've been trying to convince her to do like a response podcast to basic folk, but she <laughs> said, awesome. this, was, this was actually from her, from her texts of like when I was prepping, I was sending her all of these interviews you did. So she wanted to know um, if you had a connection to faith in God and do you consider yourself spiritual? Gosh, how do how to start? I mean, I think um, you know that podcast on being. Mm-hmm. You know, Krista Tippett's like usual opening question. She says, "Like, tell me about tell me about your faith upbringing," and it's such an an interesting opening question. You should listen to the Indigo Girls episode. Oh, actually, it's quite good. I always feel like to answer your question, I have to sort of Krista Tippett it and go back, which is to say that. I I didn't understand a difference between spirituality and religion when I was growing up. But for folks that don't think about that difference, here's how I think about it, which is that um, spirituality to me is a connection with something greater than yourself, something outside of yourself, something that um, is not you. Religion is um, the, you know, the big ones we think about, a sort of structured, historical 
way to have this relationship with something greater than yourself. So I grew up with a religion. I grew up very Catholic from a very Catholic immigrant family, and I was not into religion. However, I was always spiritual. I just didn't understand it at the time. I was always feeling like that there was a power greater than me. I was always feeling that um, when I went out in nature, something important was happening. It's part of my love of nature camp and science, you know, was that it was also like a spiritual experience for me. It was part of my reason for doing drugs. I was looking for like a spiritual experience, mm. right? You know, I've, I've heard people say before, drugs and alcohol are the closest thing to a spiritual experience that isn't, mm. right? So like, I was seeking. I was always seeking and always interested. And religion was not helping me get there. And drugs and alcohol were not helping me get there. Once I found music and found community and, you know, stopped doing drugs and alcohol, it sort of opened up a channel for me to have what I consider a spiritual relationship with the universe. I don't know how to say it any more than that, which is, you know, what does that practice look like? It it looks like... um being really open, like speaking honestly, like it ta it's about being in community with people. It's about being of service to other folks. All the time I use the word God, but I'm not talking about religion. When I use the word God, I'm just talking about that for me, that's a shorthand for like a power greater than me, which I find in a lot of different places. And I also do find in some religions, I love televangelism. Like I absolutely adore watching televangelists. They could be like spouting like anti-gay shit. I mean, it's hard to find. It's hard to flip through TV and see someone doing anti-gay evangelicalism. But like, you know, it's underneath there somewhere. But there's something to me about seeing people testify and profess and speak openly about their relationship with whatever their their God is. Like a, people don't do that. And it's really bold when people do do that. And I respect it. Wow. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, does it mean I condone hatred based on Bible? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I do find myself drawn and certainly respect to people who feel compelled to share the good news of whatever it is that's doing it for them. Hmm. So, Aaron, I know that everybody wants to talk to you about Rachel Maddow, and I am no different. Um, <laughs> I know that you have known her since she was a DJ. It was in Northampton. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was the morning DJ on our WRSI. Was it? Is it called The River? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So that was always like my dream radio station when I'd be like walking around Northampton. I would see posters of that like concerts for that radio station. I was like, that would be so cool to work at that radio station. Um, so I want to know, like, what was it like to know her back in the early, when she was like the morning DJ and basically like what that whole scene was like in Northampton at the time? I actually know her better now than I knew her then. Um, we were like shy, distant, like fans of each other at that time. So like she would come to a show and I would be, oh, my God, it's cool. Rachel Maddow's here. Um, or I would hear Rachel her. Maddow, the morning DJ. Yeah, right. I would hear her. On, I mean, I don't <laughs> I actually don't listen to the radio very much and I don't listen to that much music. Um, but I would, you know, occasionally listen to her and, and enjoyed like her thing. But but it was mostly like um, just far, far off admirers. Um, I think when we really started having more of a connection was when she got her Air America show. And she had me on her Air America show, 
And um, it was right after Hurricane Katrina had happened and I had made a record in New Orleans. And so she invited me on to talk about the record and to talk about New Orleans. Was that surprising to you that she asked you on the show? No, I I think it felt like a very natural like outgrowth of our fandom of each other. I mean, I, I remember being very flattered by the invitation. Um, you know, and it might be that she thought to ask me or that I said to her like, you know, in, in my general, like press round thoughts, like, Oh, Rachel's got a radio show now. Should I ask if I could be on that? You know, I can't even remember, but I remember being on the show and her kind of talking circles around me, like policy wise, um, just, just being really articulate, just being Rachel Maddow, like, Mm. like being really articulate about policy stuff, especially from like a kind of justice and transparency point of view. And I had never really tried to take my feelings about that stuff and turn it into sentences and and I remember being on there and like playing my songs and talking about the record but also wanting to talk more broadly about the social justice implications of New Orleans and Katrina and all that and and really feeling like oh this is a skill I've never tried before I need to learn how to do this and feeling very inspired by her in that Mm. moment of like oh she's really she's figured out how to do this I need to figure out how to do this um I felt the same way when I met the indigo girls I met them on a lobby day that we did together around the same time um, where I watched them sit in meetings with politicians and, and political staff and be able to express themselves, have a clear objective for the meeting, get um, promises or actions out of the meeting. Like it's the skill of lobbying. And I remember watching them being like, wow, I need to learn how to do that. And I remember setting my mind to it at that time, being like, okay, I'm going to learn how to have a political conversation with someone Rachel, like Rachel Maddow. I'm going to learn how to sit down with a congressional staff person and advocate the way the Indigo Girls do. Um, here's what I would say is it's just really weird when like a friend of yours gets very famous. That's all I would have to say about my relationship with Maddow. Like, it's just weird, you know, and it's like I try not to bother her too much. <laughs> You know, because like I know she's busy and I know she's doing stuff. But like the other night I was watching Drag Race and the one of the drag challenges on the latest season of RuPaul's Drag Race was like a quick drag where the queens had to pretend to be Rachel Maddow. Oh, I saw that. Right. Like, (laughs) how awesome is that? That like that like RuPaul's Drag Race, which, you know, is like completely subversive and incredibly queer and also like one of the most popular TV shows in America, like has a Rachel Maddow quick drag. So, you know, like, then I'm going to text her like, oh my God, girl, drag race, you know, but like, it's, it's, it's weird when it's weird when a friend of yours is very, very famous. It just, it affects everybody. And, um, and most of all her, and I don't envy the position that she's in. I think of it as public service. That is how I think of what she does. I think that she literally puts her life on the line. She puts her relationship on the line. She puts her personal safety and like her time on the line to do a service for our country. Miss You Like Hell is your musical, which is a collaboration with Chiara Alegria Hudis. So she wrote to you after listening to your album, Hundreds of Lions. Do you know why she was drawn to contact you after listening to that album in particular? She told me that she liked the momentum of that record. She liked how the songs felt like they all were moving forward. And she liked the mixture of electronic sounds and natural sounds that were on that record. And um, and I think she 
also I'm trying to think remember what she said it was a lot of that like sound and momentum and I think that she appreciated the simplicity of the songs as well I mean Mm. Miss You Like Hell did not end up sounding like hundreds of lions um (laughs) but that was the that was the common point um very very early in our collaboration she actually took that record and moved the songs all around and basically mapped it onto the story of the show. So there's an email somewhere that uses the 10 songs of hundreds of lines to tell the story of Miss You Like Hell. Oh, whoa. Yeah, crazy. The story at the time, I mean, the story changed over the years we made it, but but um, yeah, she heard the musical in that record. Wow. That's amazing. It is. It's a reminder to me that you, you know, you just never know. You just right. got to keep doing things that feel interesting to you as an artist and you know the internet giveth and the internet taketh away (laughs) that's for sure I want to know what your opinion on queerness and that kind of like underground jazz club 20s 30s like early Broadway vaudeville that kind of scene do you think that that has a a queer sensibility and have you always thought that Yeah, I think so. Before I understood what queer was. I mean, I think I knew that it was some of that culture um, is culture that's made in opposition to straight culture, right? Whether it was um, motivated by prohibition or motivated by heterosexual norms and, and people who didn't subscribe to that needing a place to do what they want to do. Um, I think it's always felt queer to me. There's something too about, um, that type of music it's a little hard to describe but but some of the greatest things about those like songbook standards and vaudeville songs is that they ostensibly are about one thing but are really about another thing that's much dirtier and that's (laughs) like deeply deeply queer to me you know what i mean like like um you know like i'm gonna get my baby a cup of tea but really what it means is like let's go out back and fuck you know (laughs) yeah like i that's like deeply deeply queer to me again that like coded language or ways that we hide interesting things in things that look mundane so i want to end the interview talking about um your anti-christmas record yes which you put out a few (laughs) years ago um you, you put it out because you don't like christmas correct so why well i've never liked christmas but felt I did not feel the permission to um, express that because it is such a horrifying sentiment to most people and in fact offensive to lots of people. And I'm not talking about war on Christmas. I'm talking about people who find it upsetting to their memories of family when someone else doesn't have a good feeling about Christmas. That just is true and it happens a lot. Um, There was a theater company in Northampton that I had worked with before and they were doing a, um, a kind of Christmas farce about murdering Santa. And, um, they asked me if I would write dark Christmas carols for the intermission. And I wrote three of them and had such a great time writing them. And it worked so well in that show that I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the chance I've been waiting for to express all these feelings about Christmas with humor, um, and with playfulness. And, um, I just felt like I'd been set free, you know, and it was also a great, um, community I found great community around that record um there's been lots of people who have said to me I feel the same way but but no one else that I know does or I feel like I'm not allowed to not like Christmas my experiences of Christmas were um compulsory just to sort of like 
like we have to do this thing if we don't even if we don't feel like it I found it in some ways like an exercise in denial or like you know like what's really going on in our family but we're going to pretend something else is you know and and Mm -hmm. I just always had a um, an antenna for that especially around holidays that just always drove me crazy even when I was like little and couldn't quite articulate it I just had the sense of like we're pretending something is not right we're pretending something's right when something's not right when how old were you and you were able to be like okay I know what's going on and I hate this holiday oh I was probably like 12 or 13 I mean it coincided with like just being an asshole teenager you know I mean I think a lot of kids feel that are waking up (laughs) are waking up (laughs) to the crime of christmas um but again i think i feel like it's also part of um i don't know it's part of the world of humor that i came from to poke holes in sacred things going back to spirituality like my and humor like i i just operate under the like reverent irreverence banner like that's just that's just always made sense to me. I don't, I don't have a better answer for it than that. But like um, reverent irreverence is kind of my favorite uh, intersection. Someday I want to go to divinity school. Like when I get time, like I, oh, I want to go to divinity school with with this sort of spirituality and, and reverent irreverence and this kind of things that have been part of my life and part of my music and part of things that I've been building for a long time. And I like would 100% like want to be like a, a minister of some kind wow i just don't have time right now (laughs) (laughs) well um whenever you do whenever you graduate we'll do another one of these oh great great i know i can bless you (laughs) great great um so before we go i'm going to start this new thing on basic folk where i'm going to ask you a lightning round of very easy fun questions um will you stick around and answer them for me yes okay great we'll be right back On Basic Folk, you hear honest conversations about how artists are journeying from point A to B. If you could use support and motivation on your journey, Life Coach Janet Forrest is there for you. Visit JanetForrest.com and mention Basic Folk and you'll receive 25% off your first month of coaching. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Winterbirds. Their new album, Shaker Songs, takes 18th and 19th century sacred texts from American shakers and puts it to all new progressive bluegrass compositions, exploring the poetry of this unique community. You can find Shaker Songs by Winterbirds on Bandcamp. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Erin, are you ready for the lightning round? The first lightning round ever? I'm so pleased. Okay, yes. So these are 10 questions. I don't know if I want to ask you all 10 of them, but why not? Do you want me to keep my answers very short? Um, Yes, like two sentences. Okay. Okay, ready? Um, Dogs, cats, or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Instant decaf. Favorite U.S. city and why? Cincinnati, because it's fun to say. Wow. Uh, favorite teacher? Um, I had a high school English teacher named Ms. Savia who gave me lots of really great books and taught me about puns. First album you bought with your own money? Cindy Lauper True Colors on cassette. First concert? Oh, embarrassing. The Moody Blues at King's Dominion. 
Wow, knights in white satin? No, it's terrible. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. (laughs) Can you recommend the last podcast you listened to? Yes. And what was it? That was not worded very well. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. It's just messing with you. Um, yes, it was um, an episode of a Gimlet podcast called Without Fail. And it was an interview with Netflix's former head of HR. It was about um, how you create companies that employees want to work for. Your favorite vacation you ever took? I don't go on vacation. Good answer. Uh, dream collaboration. Mm, more with Matto. Favorite type of white noise. Oh, the white noise app on my phone that I sleep to every night. Just plain old white noise. Wow. All right, Erin, thank you. You did wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what do I get a prize? Yes, you do get I get to a vacation? Be, <laughs> you get a vacation. Thank you so much for this time. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I like usually am more sharp. But that was great. I I really enjoyed I enjoyed these questions, and I hope that your listeners enjoyed answers. There you have it. Our very first lightning round ending Basic Folk. Hope you enjoyed that very much. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy. Our music is by Alex Stanton of the Pittsburgh band Townspeople. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. I love you so much. Please review and subscribe to Basic Folk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you prefer. You can check out show notes and more at cindyhowes.net. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye.